0: Here's the host of the Talent Talk radio show, the founder and CEO of People G2, Chris Dyer.
1: Good afternoon and thank you for joining me here on Talent Talk. It's Tuesday and, uh, well, we're back at it. I think this is our second show of the year and we're, uh, really excited with some of the guests and conversations that we're going to have today. Uh, I, you know, I have the opportunity of uh, meeting these inspiring leaders and having its incredible guests on my show and i just love to have you being a part of it and really give you the privilege to to listen in our conversation and hopefully we'll talk about something that might be of interest to you you might learn from this show is really design, kind of designed to give you that opportunity and if you want to uh, go deeper. You want to find out more about our guests. You want to ask questions. We'd love to have you do that as well. Uh, Talent Talk is uh, live here every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. With the rare holiday or exception, we're, we're generally live. But you know, most of you tend to jump in and uh, actually reach out and, and listen to us on either iTunes through the podcast app there with Talent Talk, or with um, iHeartRadio where you can hear us there as well. Massed a great following between the all the different platforms. Um, and through the website directly of over 600,000 if you came in last week and downloaded at least one podcast we're just just thrilled that so many of you are coming in we're getting millions every month uh enjoying the show listening to our guests and then of course like i said interacting with us on twitter so we'd love to have you do that just pop on there ask your question um add the at people g2 and if you can the hashtag uh talent talk my producer mike will be watching right now and as the weeks and months go by after the show's been taped, uh, we, we continue that conversation and ask questions and answer questions and provide everything we can as a resource to the HR and, and business and CEO community out there. So my guest today, let's go ahead and get to the, to the meat of it, will be uh, Hans Downer, the president and CEO of uh, Savvy Docs. Uh, And then we will have uh, Stephanie McVeigh, CEO and founder of Strategic Incentive Solutions. Uh, Stephanie will be on the second half of the show. So it seems like we're going to have kind of a C-level conversation today. Uh, A lot of times we have a mix or we have HR folks on, but it looks like today we're going to be talking kind of through the minds and and, uh, understanding uh, of the CEO. So let's go ahead and get to my first guest, uh, Hans Downer. Welcome uh, to the show, Hans.
2: Thanks very much, Chris. I really look forward to the uh, discussion.
1: So let's talk a little bit about yourself, maybe a couple of your career highlights, and you know, maybe uh, what we should know about your company, Savvy Docs.
2: Sure thing. Thank you. Uh, I actually grew up in a small town in Ontario, up in Canada. I went to college at the University of Waterloo, which is kind of like the MIT of Canada. And just as a note, Microsoft hires more people from the uh, University of Waterloo than any other school in North America. And over the years, I've, ha- I've worked for a couple of large companies like General Electric and Northern Telecom, a couple of mid-sized companies like and uh, Trust, where I was responsible for $70 million of their $100 million in revenue, and MXI Technologies, where my team was able to grow our revenues from $16 million to $40 million in 18 months. And I've also worked for three separate startups along the way, so I've been really lucky to have a wide range of experience in, in all sizes of enterprises. And uh, my experience has all been in B2B, uh, in disciplines that include sales, marketing, customer support, professional services, engineering, and IT and I've been really lucky to have a wide range of experience with a number of really excellent mentors and managers. So let me just flip now and give you a little bit of background on Savvy Docs. Uh, our founder was a really brilliant man by the name of David Thompson. He was a senior executive with McKinsey, and while he was at McKinsey, he gathered a whole lot of information on companies that grew to be a billion dollars in revenue. And as a result of that information, he was able to write two books. One was called Blueprint to a Billion, and the second was managing the seven essentials, which were the seven things he had to do to grow to be a billion dollars. Both of those made New York Times bestseller lists, and as a result, David was consulting all over North America with um, CEOs and helping them to grow their business. And being a good consultant, he'd always ask, well, tell me about your key issues apart from growing revenues. What are your key issues? And one thing that just kept coming back time and time again was In today's environment, it's all a distributed environment. It's no longer centralized. And we've got all these people out in the field, and we're sending them information by email. I've got all these version control problems. If we want to collaborate with them, there are no real good collaboration tools for working with those people in the field. And since we're good corporate guys, we want to know if they're even reading what we're sending them. Um, So David decided to build a company to address that problem. He founded it in June of 2011 hardest hired his first developers in March 2012, and then, unfortunately, David passed away at the age of 58 in August of 2012 from a heart attack. The board of directors happened to know me from previous lives, and um, they asked me if I'd come on board to uh, guide the, guide the uh, company forward, and they had a tremendous selling pitch. They said, uh, we've got no product, we have no customers, and we have no money, but you should come and give it a shot. So uh, given that, that intro, I started in September of 2012. We had a really tremendous technology team uh, in Ottawa. Adobe had 150 developers who were working on a product called Lifecycle. They were all laid off in January of 2012 when the product development was moved to uh, India. And uh, we were able to hire five of the best people they had in Adobe to start Savvy Docs. We're now on the sixth release of the product, and it's focused on simplifying document distribution and collaboration. And our key differentiator is that we manage and control the modification of the content of the document once we share it. So unlike enterprise content management systems and file sync and share systems that just share the documents and then it's up to you to manage how you do the changes, we work with the users to manage that content change. And our Key differentiators, as I mentioned, are the, the fact that we manage that. We provide additional security around the documents. We can track who's read the documents. We totally eliminate all those version control problems that the uh, people had talked about earlier, and we provide the first viable alternative, the word track changes. Um, early in our development, we had the concept reviewed by Forrester and Obam. Obam are a large research team in uh, in Europe, and they both said the same thing you're going to have a tough time selling this because it sits right in between file sync and share and enterprise content management systems. You do a whole bunch of things that they don't do and that they probably should be doing, but they do a whole bunch of things that you don't do and you don't want to do. And indeed, that has been the case. So getting traction was was tough. We're finally starting to get some traction now in the government and the legal sectors, and we see big opportunities in professional services, research organizations, and Regulated environments where they're working on ISO compliance.
1: Well, you know, you you of all the things that you mentioned, there, kind of picking up on something on the end. Just the, the idea that tracking whether or not someone has read something is a really kind of interesting concept. We share all these documents, and we have all these things from different, you know, like you said platforms, but. Do they actually read it? Do they actually digest it? Um, and that's fascinating from a you know client perspective, from an employee perspective, uh, to compliance and HR. I mean, uh, you, you know, are you you spend all this money maybe on some great sales stuff for your sales team, but do they actually read it? You know, are they actually using it? That kind of stuff is really really important to the you know the overall I think value to the organization as to whether or not. You, did this program work or not? And is that because people didn't like it or it was a bad program? Or is that because nobody understood it? No one actually read, you know, the 101 document on on how to make it work. So it sounds like a really intriguing, uh, you know, idea. And it does sound like that you have some, some real opportunities there to, to, to kind of tackle into some of the, those issues that those, those consultants that you mentioned really kind of started to dig into that you kind of sit in a really interesting place. Um, do, do, do you think that that will continue to be the model, or is it to, to maybe kind of push the, the overall industry into a better uh, better ca- you know use case for, for this kind of uh, document sharing?
2: Well, it, it, it's interesting. That's a really, really great question. We were just speaking with uh, an analyst uh, last week, and his view is the file sync and share space is consolidating. They all have the same basic capabilities, but all they do is share files. They don't do collaboration and management of the content of those documents, so I think there's a huge opportunity as we go forward to add incremental functionality, not just to file sync and share solutions, but to enterprise content management systems as well, and enterprise content management systems, while they do indeed share files, in most cases, the user interface is pretty tough, and what we do is we provide an integrated solution with that enterprise content management system to make that user interface simple and easy to use so that the users will continue to use it rather than just abandoning the enterprise content management system and going back to the way they did it before.
1: So your competitors are are many. Your, your challenges are are pretty obvious. Um, so is this a, an opportunity for you to go and slay dragons or are you, you know, in a kind of a maybe a headspace where you have to really think about how do you keep employees motivated and, and the board, you know, kind of focused and, and really driving towards that, that end goal that you want?
2: Uh, that's, a, that's a really good question. I think um, from a motivational perspective, as with any startup, there's there's a sequence of highs and lows, and I've been through these three or four times, and, you know, one week you're high as a kite, and the next week you think, oh, my God, we're not going to make it beyond the end of this week. Right. So it's really <laughs> important not to let those lows get to lows. And, um, you know, I've I've gone around and talked to a lot of guys in the startup community here in Ottawa, and almost all of the startups that I've talked to that are successful today almost failed four or five times because they almost ran out of money. And so it's really important from a motivational perspective just to make sure everybody understands that that's the reality of the situation. And the CEO's got to be honest and forthright about the financial status of the organization on an ongoing basis. And if you're going to run out of money, you need to tell the team and explain to them why and what are the plans for recovery and, and be honest about it and don't don't hide it. I mean, it's a reality, so, so you owe it to your employees to tell them. And, you know, in a startup, it's, it's so, so easy to focus on the negatives. I mean, there's millions of them. The product doesn't have all these features. The customers don't like the way this works. So the market's heading in a different direction, and, and the list can go on and on and on and on. So it's really important for the CEO to keep the team focused on the positives and basically act as the cheerleader to keep everyone focused on those positives. And, you know, we've had this discussion many, many times within our team, and it doesn't matter what company you work for, whether it's a big company, a medium-sized company, or a small company, you always, always think the product is worse than it is when you work inside the company because you know all the potential problems in all the corner cases. But in most cases, the customers never see those problems, and they're insignificant if they are there. Um, and it's really important not to over-rotate on those because it's, it's really easy to do that if you're not careful. But on the other side of the coin, it's really important to, to quickly highlight the real customer problems and get a plan in place to address them really quickly so that you can move on with your business and um, in our company to keep everybody motivated, we all know what the end goal is. It's more customer sales, it's going out slaying that dragon that you talked about and growing savvy docs into a viable ongoing business and I think the statistics from Gallup show that 40 to 50% of teams in almost all organizations especially big ones are disengaged and in a small company, you just can't afford that. I can, I can honestly assure you that that our team is fully focused on that end goal, fully engaged. We don't have anybody who's disengaged, and it's really important and really impressive from a, from a team perspective when we come in with a key customer requirement and see how excited everybody on the team gets about knowing that somebody's actually going to use what they build instead of building something that somebody on the team thinks is important. And one of our guys had a really great quote. He said, look, I'm, I'm tired of digging all these holes and then filling them back in again when we find out that the customers don't really want what we build. And we went through that for a couple of years because we didn't have a lot of customer traction. But now that we've got the traction, it has really motivated and engaged the team and has given us the focus to move to that next level where we can slay the dragon you were talking about.
1: Yeah. So you, you've had this experience with large companies. You've been through a few startups, and you're in that startup you know, mode now. Uh, how would you describe the culture? And, you know, is that is it sort of typical to a startup uh, scenario, or do you bring in elements of those other big companies and experiences you've had to maybe create something unique?
2: Yeah, I think uh, that's a really good question as well. I, I think it's really important, uh, no matter what size of company you have, you've got to be dealing with honesty and integrity and you got to do that inside the company and when dealing with customers. So in our company, everything internally is pretty open. We listen to everybody's ideas. We discuss them openly and we might not implement all of them, but normally they get a pretty full cool review. So that ensures we get buy-in from everybody on the team. And when you're a little little company, that's really, really, really important. And on the customer side, Again, we try to focus on that honesty and integrity. And if the product doesn't do something that the customer wants, we tell them that we can't do that. And if it's really important, we make sure we understand the requirement and discuss it internally before coming back to them with, uh, with an estimated time to address it, And uh, if, if we can. And if our product just doesn't fit, we tell the customer, this, this, sorry, this one's not a good fit, sorry, uh, so I don't want to waste your time and our time trying to fit a, a square peg into a round hole so I, that's something i've learned over and over especially dealing with customers and i'll talk a bit about that uh a bit later if i get a chance but you just have to be honest with your customers you can't hide things that don't work that's that's just absolutely imperative
1: yeah and and that always kind of as you kind of alluded to it can be a balance because you know everything that The system can or can't do and where maybe the issues are and they don't necessarily know that so you know how much do you talk about how much we certainly don't walk in and say here are the you know although i actually i have heard this as a strategy but most people don't walk in and say here are the top 10 reasons why we're terrible or what our system can't do or (laughs) how bad we are i I have heard some people use that as a sales strategy which is interesting but uh, most of us don't walk in the room and do that so it's, right. it's probably a bit of knowing what you're, you think your, your new customer is going to want and then being honest about what you think you can actually deliver. You know, I mean, it could probably lead to dating, right? Don't show up on the first date and say, listen, I snore. <laughs> you, you know you don't start with your negatives you know but you, you, at some point that's have to it's probably got to come up and it, it, you know maybe a, a point you have to you have to address so is that is that kind of what you see is that does that drive with what i'm saying oh, absolutely
2: well, once you get to know the customer and know their requirements you, you get a pretty good feel of you know what will and won't work and and you know if something doesn't impact them and it doesn't work then no point telling them because it's irrelevant But, uh, you know, if they want some real key feature and, you know, your product can't do it, then you need to be up front and tell them and say, okay, we can't do that. Here's the workaround. Here's when we think we're going to get it fixed. And I, I can tell you that when we worked at Nortel, I used that philosophy all the time with our customers, and it just paid dividends that were unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable.
1: You know, since uh, we have uh, two CEOs on our show today, I'm going to maybe kind of throw in a curveball question here. I'm going to ask each of you today, and uh, especially because you have the experience in a larger company. Um, I- I'm wondering if, you know, as the CEO, if, um, you know, your, your organization is going, you feel like things are going well, um, you know, you, in in general you are, are happy with the, the, the movement of, of your people and your culture, but let's say someone in HR, let's say somebody who is sort of, Understands and is charged with some of the the people related issues uh, that can come up, and um, let's say that they've identified that there is a, a particular area that they feel the company is struggling with, or could do better, or if if you did a better job here, you would see exponential you know sort of results. How does that person get the attention, or make a business case, or you know get that CEO to take? what they think seriously because generally the CEOs are sort of in charge of the culture right they're, they're the ones who are sort yeah. of you know living it breathing it uh, kind of telling everyone what they want but how does someone who doesn't have that power from inside the organization get someone up top to listen that, that's sort of the, the, the gist of the, the question there
2: yeah I've, I've been really fortunate as I said in working in all sizes of companies so I've seen the impact of culture and what can happen if you don't get it right and, and there's a great book called uh the life cycle of organizations, it's by a guy by the name of Chuck Adiz. And it goes through, you know, various changes, like there's a an impact of twenty people, another one at about uh, fifty million dollars worth of revenue, another one at about a hundred million dollars of revenue. So so if somebody has some ideas, at least on our team with with regards to culture, um, I am really open to listening about it because of the experience that I've had and also the the teachings from this book. And um, I definitely have the experience to say that if you get the culture messed up, it can be an absolute disaster. So I'm more than willing to look at listen to that. And if there's a solid case and they've got some solid evidence from other places as opposed to just a theory, I, I think that's uh, something that is absolutely absolutely imperative for the CEO to listen to.
1: right. Well, good. Uh, you know, one of the, our kind of favorite questions to ask uh, our guests, and hopefully, you have a great answer for us, is: Is there a book that you're reading right now, or maybe you recently finished that you might share with us and suggest that our, our listeners take a you know a look at?
2: Yeah, there's there's one that I just finished reading. It's it's um, by a really great author, Michael Lewis, who also wrote Flash Boys, Moneyball, and The Big Short. And the book's entitled The Undoing Project, and it's the story of two Israeli PhDs. Both are really, 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 really smart. But when they worked together, the synergies were just absolutely unbelievable. And you always hear one plus one equals three. Well, these guys, one plus one equaled about eight. And one of their names were Amos Amos Tversky and Daniel Kahneman. uh, Kahneman, Um, And when they were working on this stuff, one of the key things was they always had one person who was responsible for publishing their theory. And that person always had control of the document content. They'd make sure that they agreed, but that one person owned the document. And some of the key theories that those guys came up with actually led to the creation of the algorithms used to judge potential performance identified in that book, Moneyball. And it's interesting, one of the key philosophies of our product, Savvy Docs, is to take advantage of those types of group synergies in a parallel document review to create documents quicker and of much better quality than the processes that are in use today. Um, so, so I found a really interesting parallel between the synergies in the book and the synergies that we create in our product. And uh, being a good Canadian, I'm, I'm also reading uh, Wayne Gretzky's Stories of Hockey, and for anybody interested in hockey, that's a really great book, too.
1: So does that mean you always have a hockey book then, being a good Canadian, to sort of always on the mantle there, uh, reading as you go along? Well, I
2: have I have that one finished. I have another one just ready to go now.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great! <laughs> and I didn't know you mentioned that Waterloo, uh, where you went to school. I it was a kind of interesting fact I did never heard of about uh, Microsoft hiring more people out of that college yeah. than anywhere else in North America. That's a uh, uh, considering MIT and Harvard, some of the different places that you might think of, it's not one that I would have uh, immediately would have come to mind. It's a it, fascinating fact.
2: Yeah, that's quite a, quite an interesting fact for, uh, for most people, and we're pretty proud of that up, up here in Canada.
1: Right, right. Well, um, you know, maybe if you think back over your career, do you think you can um, uh, pinpoint, you know, someone or something that really helped kind of shape you know your own talent and your own passions that was you know, sometimes people have this kind of pivot moment or a, a special uh, person in their life you know a parent a boss whatever is there something like that you feel like that kind of really shaped who you are
2: well i actually had two of those kind of experiences the first one um related to a guy that worked for me as a director when i was working for north he was just a brilliant financial guy I was running services up in the 9X region at the time, and, and this gentleman didn't have a whole lot of experience in the service service support role. I was working in headquarters just prior to that time, and this guy was having a, a pretty significant customer problem in, in uh, New York, and we ran into a very significant butting of heads. So unexpectedly, about a month later, I became that guy's boss, and everybody was waiting for the fireworks to happen. And... It didn't happen. We both got along exceptionally well. And we had this one customer who was, who, I mean, just hated us with a passion. So I said to this the fellow who worked for me, um, okay, your job is to go and whatever you have to do. I don't care what you have to do. Do whatever you have to do. Just keep me posted to turn that guy around. So he did an absolutely amazing job. That customer became our largest supporter within a year. And that customer and I still exchange emails, sorry, Christmas cards. 30 years later, because of the work that that guy did who worked for me. Uh, and then that guy who worked for me as a director went on to become the CEO of another company. And he called one, me one day to say, hey, will you come and work for me to run our support team. Uh, you're the best boss I ever had. So so from a learning experience, how you manage people is really, really important to your ongoing career. And then the second one is, is all about the the importance of customer support. Um, I mentioned we just were able to turn around that significant customer in about um, 12 months or so, but during that same period, we were providing strong support across the rest of 9X, and as a result, we had really, really strong relationships with them, and during that time, Northern Telecom was having some pretty tough times with telephone switch performance, and the company had pretty rocky, and in some cases, just totally adversarial relationships with most of the regional Bell operating companies, except NyMex where we had these great supporters. So despite the fact I ran a services team, I was asked to prime the response on a $200 million RFP response from Nortel. And I had a really great team working with me on that. And thanks to their, their work uh, and the strong relationships, we were able to win $110 million of that RFP. And also, more importantly, eliminate one customer who was trying to get into the 9 network. And that was my first real experience saying how important support was. And the next one tied right onto that because um, I went to a company called New Trust to run their support and pro services team. When I started, we had 15 people and revenues of about a million dollars. And in five years, we had 225 employees and revenues of $60 million. And the key feedback that was absolutely unbelievable from our sales team was that many of our customers were telling other potential customers. They should buy and trust software because the support was so good. And this is the place where we we had this honesty policy with the customers. If we had a problem and we knew it was going to impact them, we'd tell them. And uh, we'd tell them what the workaround was and then tell them when we could fix it. And that just went over so well. It was amazing because think of the situation if you don't tell a customer what the problem is. You come up to their deadline and say, "Haha, surprise, this doesn't work. They miss their deadline; they'll never buy anything from you again.
1: And yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, those, are, those are so important that sort of honesty, transparency uh, yeah. uh, element. Well, Hans, you've given us yeah. some some great stories today. Uh, we really enjoyed our, our time here, and unfortunately, we're at the the end of of the first part of our uh, uh, of the show. So, thank you so much for being on with us, and we really hope we can have you come back at some point and give us an update.
2: Good deal. Thanks so much for your time today, Chris.
1: All right, we'll be right back after this quick commercial break on our second guest, Stephanie McVeigh.
3: higher
1: welcome back to the talent talk radio show that was a extra quick commercial break so we went a little bit long with our first guest so uh my second guest uh will be stephanie mcveigh ceo and founder of strategic incentive solutions as i said our second ceo of of today's show so we're going to kind of focus on those issues that are important to to ceos um don't forget you can uh Submit a question uh, via Twitter uh, to Stephanie and any of our other past guests from past shows. If you're interested, uh, send that uh, question to peopleg 2 Use that hashtag talent talk, all one word, and we will make sure uh, to get an answer. But Stephanie, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you very much, Chris.
1: So tell everyone a little bit about yourself uh, and, of course, what your company does, uh, Strategic Incentive Solutions.
3: You bet. Well, my name is Stephanie McVeigh, and uh, I own a company called Strategic Incentive Solutions, which is a full-service incentive marketing company. I've been in the incentive marketing industry, working with many different Fortune 500, Fortune 1000 companies, both throughout Canada as well as the U.S., Um, We offer a number of different solutions as it relates to both incentive reward programs, Chris, as well as event management. So we work with companies to understand what are their strengths and their weaknesses and then best position rewards programs and events to drive behavior to make people succeed. Well, that
1: was uh, a a nice compact but very impactful, uh, you know, sort of uh – description it sounds like your company does a lot of really interesting things uh, i know you have a, a proven track record from designing successful incentive programs what is it that makes you know the uh, some of the better incentive programs actually effective
3: sure well, when we're working with different companies, as I mentioned to you, we work with many different companies in many different vertical markets, so certainly the culture of the organization that we work within certainly is is the driving decision behind that, Chris, but when we're working with companies uh, looking to design an incentive program, some of the things we look at, it's really critical to, for our clients to be very clear on why they're looking to drive an incentive program, whether it's to drive in- uh, engagement with their employees or their customers. You just want to make sure that that investment that they're putting is going to achieve the results that they're looking to do. And so we as an organization work very closely with our clients to really understand what their selling cycle is, we want to really set forward and avoid what we call the peaks and valleys. So when we're working with organizations, we take a look at um, driving what we call authentic loyalty versus synthetic loyalty. And so by putting together programs that are truly going to drive the performance, sometimes that's going to be about driving the behavior of their employees. It might be wrapped around safety reward programs. Sometimes it's moving products through the channel of distribution, and sometimes it's just about building the brand. So what's really important as we take a look to design a successful incentive program is we really want to follow what we call the nine successful measures in in building a successful campaign, and that is making sure to set the goal for the incentive program is the first step. Then we work very closely with our clients to be able to determine what their target audience is, whether that's employee or customer-driven. Thirdly, we work with our clients to determine the incentive Program scope of work. So we really go through the structure. We try to understand, as I mentioned, the strengths, the weaknesses, what are the pain areas, what keeps them up at night, and then we best position that program to be able to meet those objectives. And we look very closely at the budget, regardless of the size of the company. Budget is always important. So it's important that we are able to set the right budget according to those behaviors, And then the fun part, which is choosing rewards. So Strategic, being a full-service incentive marketing company, we put a number of different reward vehicles together as business building solutions. So we would work with them, Chris, to really understand the culture of their organization and what motivates that target audience. And then sometimes we use travel, sometimes we use merchandise, gift cards, and often online points-based engines to be able to drive that consistent loyalty.
1: Well, yeah, There's so, so many different areas it sounds like you're, you're kind of getting into, but maybe when, when companies are looking at their culture and they're considering incentives for their employees, what are some of the things that you're seeing that they're really looking at um, that they're you know, sort of hoping will really drive that, uh, that change or drive that incentive or drive that uh, passion for their employees?
3: You bet. So, you know, a couple of really key areas that most of our clients are looking for is they're really looking to determine how can they drive that performance of that employee. What is their loyalty? What's their commitment? What's the reliability? And sometimes even what their uh, attendance is as it relates to employees. So we really, again, do a a bit of an analysis to be able to understand the culture of that organization. And what's often interesting is that the culture changes not only from company to company, but often from division to division. So some of the key things that they look for is to be able to drive that performance and be able to maximize their productivity and loyalty to the organization. And then what we do is we best position the right – Reward solution to be able to drive those objectives.
1: So, uh, you know, as companies kind of have this need then to understand what it takes to create an incentive program, how do you best engage the employees? You know, they they maybe have done this before and failed. They may have never done it before, and there may be some uh, maybe skepticism. There may be sort of overexcitement, whatever it may be. Um, So within your company, what are you, you know, kind of doing then to really make sure you're engaging those employees in the right way? Um, so that it's successful.
3: Within our own company, being a performance marketing company, we very much have a culture where we really look to empower our individuals. So as it relates to engaging our employees, it's not only reward-driven, but it's behavior-driven. So we really look to empower them to succeed in their role, whatever that role might be, whether it's an event planner, whether it's somebody within the office, whether they're in a sales position or a support uh, position. And we really try to make them that they make a difference in the organization and what an important aspect that they are. And then we drive those behaviors um, that grow the company through motivating them uh, with a preset uh, set of metrics for both individual non-cash incentives as well as group travel incentives. So we take our top people or top producers to an annual all-inclusive trip.
1: Wow, an all-inclusive trip. That's uh, I know a lot of companies use some... Some similar things like that. Do you you find kind of trips and travel, is that one of the more popular types of um, things that employees like, or are there other things that you find to be fairly popular?
3: Yeah, great question, Chris. Travel is undoubtedly continues to be one of the number one ways to motivate and drive people. Um, One of the the strengths behind travel in particular, but non-cash incentives in general, is the fact that it has what we call trophy value. So often when you remunerate um, employees with, um, with bonuses, for example, what it does is it becomes more of what we call an entitlement, so it becomes very much part of their compensation. So there's a difference between a compensation program and a rewards program. And a rewards program is very much to create and build that trophy value. So we find that there is no better way to build value um, than to have your employees or your customers all together in one group event where they can, you know, speak with their peers, motivate each other, and learn from each other. And you build relationships that last for years. Our average clients probably have been with our organization for about 12 years. And when you spend a week with an individual sitting in the pool talking about your kids, it is just there is no better way to build that engagement whether they're your employees or your customers, it's very powerful.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it. And as you get those opportunities to really understand that that person better, I was also thinking I'm wondering what sort of things you do to maybe try to understand your clients, the companies you're working for on a deeper level to, you know, really make sure that the program that you might suggest will have the most impact and the most um, sort of long-term stability to really help them achieve their goals.
3: Absolutely. So when we work with any of our clients, whether it's a new client or a a 10-year client, we really differentiate ourselves by being very strong as it relates to the relationship side. So we look to be a true partner to our clients. And in order for us to truly suggest what we call best practices or strategic solutions to drive loyalty, performance, and engagement amongst their employees or their channel of distribution, we really want to understand some key aspects. What are your goals? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? And what are your pain areas? And then what we want to do is be able to get a feel for what each individual within that organization does in terms of a job. Because when you're dealing with, for example, in a sales role versus somebody in telemarketing versus a shipper, often what we see is that companies fall short when they put together engagement programs because they take a look at a program that meets the masses. So what we want to do is we really want to get in. Sometimes we interview, we meet with some of these individuals, and start to understand the true culture within that organization. As I mentioned earlier, sometimes that culture is different, even from division to division. And then what we do is once we understand and do a complete analysis of understanding the culture within that organization, at that point we're in a better position to be able to put together a strategic plan for a successful engagement program that will meet those objectives and the investment that they're looking to put in by offering the best reward solution, whether that is cash, non-cash incentive, and undoubtedly the majority of our rewards are very driven by group travel.
1: So I kind of added in a little bit of a curveball question for Hans, our first guest, and asking him about... How can someone in HR, someone in management, who has identified that there is, you know, hey, our company is doing seven out of the eight things we should be doing from a culture standpoint, a company standpoint, right? But there's this one area we're just not doing right, or if we did a better job, we would see such a, you know, uh incremental measurable change to our company to our whether it's to our bottom line to our retention levels whatever those things may be and so maybe I can put it in the context here of a, a little bit sharper uh, given what you do let's say that they have decided that recognition um, and, and and that be an incentive program would be a part of that is the area where the company is weak um, so how does that person who's not a c level person, how, what what sort of advice or how do you think that person can have that conversation and what they what do they need to deliver to the CEO to you know to that uh, to the board of directors whoever maybe that's making that decision what do you think they need to deliver what are they going to need to say what are some of the maybe advice and how how you have that conversation coming from maybe middle management talking to upper management.
3: Sure, absolutely. Another great question. So, and we do that often. You know, when we're working with an individual that may be, for example, in HR, what we try to do is The executive team is always going to take a look at looking for the ROI, right? What's the ROI and how do we measure that? So measurement becomes very important. So what we would do is we would really again, um, retracting to the last question, is to be understand, getting them to identify What those areas in recognition are that they're weak. And we often see that, you know, that they, their programs are outdated, they're still doing kind of the pins type of thing and, and they're just, it's not really having impact on that that uh, behavior of that individual so we we may also suggest that we speak with some of those employees to find out what actually moves them it's very important to understand with your target audience w- what what drives their behavior because the individual that we're meeting with on the management team may see the driver as being one aspect but in actual fact when you converse with the employee they, they have a completely different Set of uh, triggers if you will that drive them. So our suggestion would be would be to probably pull that information to really understand and determine what's going to drive that group and then we would, suggest putting together the best reward um, mechanism to specifically concentrate on those areas. And depending on the reward program that we offered, for example, if it was a points-based employee um, platform, a peer-to-peer recognition program, we would probably suggest that those particular areas where they fall short, that we would accelerate, for example, the points in that area to be able to drive specific behaviors in a specific area where they feel they're weak.
1: Well, it's it's great advice, and um, you kind of touched on a lot of different details. But you know, the, I think the big picture detail might be just the ROI, right? The return on investment. Can you make that case? Can you show uh, that person in that leadership uh, position that, that there can be an improvement here? That we can invest this time or this money or both, and see something better on the other side, and more than just a a hunch or a theory. But you know, can you show me how this can really happen? And um, I think it's uh, it's good advice for for anyone trying to deliver anything, but especially if they're trying to get you to change something on a culture perspective, right?
3: Correct, and and what that's going to mean to them. So, if we drive the behavior of this individual to accomplish X, what is that going to mean in terms of the bigger pic- picture? In terms of driving the cor- you know, the cor- the corporate profitability of the organization.
1: Right. Absolutely. So uh, you know, have have you had the situation where you know maybe you've gone in and, and delivered a particular scenario, and maybe the company's changed, uh, maybe they've been purchased, maybe their leadership has changed, and suddenly that's not working. Have you had to kind of ha- have a quick pivot in order to help the company continue to be successful, or have you generally seen you know the solutions that you're you're installing are fairly leverageable? you know, and, and, and sustainable regardless of those changes? I
3: would I would have to say that, um, Chris, with technology today, it really makes it much easier to shift a program in terms of, of culture changes than it would have been probably 15 years ago or even 10 years ago for that matter. So I would say that it makes it very easy more for the latter to be able to leverage that. So when it really comes to designing the uh, programs to drive the customer or employee, employee engagement, there are so many variables which are factored in that, that we've spoke to as it relates to culture sometimes, and again, not only within an organization but a division. So when we work with our clients, we really work on an ongoing basis, uh, meet with them often to really understand and evaluate those changes. Sometimes we'll see a culture change as, as simple as, you know, a C- CEO change or some type of executive change that just shakes up and creates concern within that organization. And so often we pay attention to those changes, and then we would sometimes raise the bar in in terms of the the uh, the reward or incentive to keep the morale up during that difficult time. But I would say that it's it's a lot easier today to leverage that through technology.
1: Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, if you have the program set up, it's just a matter of making those changes from a technology standpoint, as 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 opposed to reprinting manuals and you know maybe. Far more labor intensive uh, types of things. Uh, You know, one of our favorite questions to ask our guests is uh, about the books they may be reading or have read. Uh, Do you have a great book that you might suggest uh, that our listeners take a look at?
3: Well, the current book I'm reading right now, uh, I'm actually a cancer survivor myself. So I'm currently, out of a, uh, a suggestion from a, a client who's become a close friend, I'm currently actually reading, I don't know if you've ever read, These Five Secrets You Must Discover Before You Die by Dr. John Izzo. And it's a really phenomenal book because... Um, Dr. Izzo interviewed more than 200 people that were all over the age of 60. So it's kind of fun because what he did was he identified um, in his book others that have lived happy lives with a very strong purpose and contentment. So, rather than the whole purpose of the book is rather than waiting till you're 60 to learn all these things that you could have done had you known at 60 or had you known at 20 what you learn at 60, he really showcases those things and puts them into a big picture for individuals to be able to really step back and uh, and take a look at what's really important in life. So it's a very it's it's a very light read and an easy read. I'm really enjoying it.
1: Well, it sounds like a fantastic sort of reflective book. So it sounds like you're uh, in recovery, and that's that's good news and a good, good kind of a feel-good book to to maybe reflect on as you're uh, kind of coming out of that. Um, I know I've suggested the book uh, Super Better, uh, which is for anyone who is going th- currently going through any sort of illness. It's, it's a fantastic book on how to gamify your recovery, gamify your how to deal with the illness and, and, and people around you and everything else. It kind of gives you that little bit of a manual. And if you like games, it's uh, kind of a cool one. So maybe think of it no, when you mentioned uh, to look it up. You know, re- mm-hmm. recovering from that. Well, uh, Stephanie, I really want to appreciate uh, really what, reiterate again about our appreciation and you coming on the show today and sharing everything about your company and, and how you deal with incentives. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Hopefully we can have you come back and give us an update on all the cool things that you're doing.
3: It would be a pleasure, Chris.
1: All right. Well, thank you to both of my guests uh, to, again today. Hopefully, you've gained something that will help your own career in a positive way. Uh, next week, uh, my guests will include uh, Phoebe uh, Kongchua. I was actually uh, on her show uh, a few months back, and now I'm re- returning the favor. She's a brand journalist, and you may have known her if you've Ever lived in the San Diego area. She used to be a newscaster down there, and uh, she's a really fun guest. And then we also have uh, Abby Fleming. She's the engagement director for uh, Jacobson. So until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today. <music>